blessing. And we're going to see that our source of joy, and remember this, and we'll talk about it in detail um, on Sunday morning, but joy is different than happiness. Um, you know, the Lord desires for us to experience happiness, but joy is something much richer and deeper and something that we can have even as Paul had while he was chained to a Roman guard. So we're going to talk about joy, and of course, he uses the name Jesus 40 times in those four chapters. So our source of joy is in the Lord, and that's what we're going to be looking at. It's a powerful epistle. Invite somebody out for our three services on Sunday as we start the book of Philippians. Uh, also on Sunday, there's going to be a baptism after the services, 2 o'clock over here at the Hope Therapy Center. So if you've got any questions, just let me know. And uh, there's changing rooms and all that, locker rooms there, 2 o'clock uh, on Sunday. And the high school youth worship night, 6.30 to 8 o'clock, followed by nacho bar, so nachos. So it sounds like a great time for the high schoolers. Parents, they'll be reminding them. Uh, also, as uh, we have these times, 6.30 to 8 o'clock, uh, we want to make sure that we pick up the kids around 8 o'clock and, um, as, you know, when the event ends and uh, try to get everybody out and home and uh, in time for school and, and make sure they get their work done. Cairo Bowling is going to be on the 25th. That's a week from this weekend. And then the church directory, make sure that you... Get If you want to be in it, fill out that slip, drop it in the box there, and we'll continue to do that through the month. Uh, a couple other things. Um, as uh, we just continue through Psalms, uh, in a couple of weeks, I don't know, have you guys been paying attention in the news, uh, what is going on, everything in the Middle East and in Syria? And also, as uh, we see the upheaval is growing in Israel, uh, even in the last few days. And violence has increased, terrorism, and even as I speak, they're afraid of a third intifada that's going to begin as the West Bank is about ready to erupt in violence. And uh, so we need to watch the events that are taking place around us. I personally believe that they're very significant. We see that there's Russian forces and Iranian ground troops, 1,500 of them, pouring into Syria. And uh, we see that uh, Russia is flexing her muscles and telling the United States to stay out of the way. And they're only a few kilometers away from the northern border of Israel. We know that the scriptures talk about there's going to be that large uh, confederation of nations from the north as he's going to put a hook in their jaw and it's going to bring them down into Israel. And what we read in Ezekiel 38 and 39 so that's what we're going to talk about those things on New Year's Eve and the prophecy update. I hope I can wait that long to talk about these things. But we are going to be, as I was talking about in Psalm 83 here, if not next week, the week after that. And it's going to be kind of a prelude to the prophecy update. And I think you'll find Psalm 83 to be very fascinating if you haven't looked at it very closely, and we will do that because it talks about a confederation of nations coming into Israel and designed to destroy the name of Israel. I think it's real important for us as Christians that we keep uh, looking at the events that are around us, and particularly as we know that Israel is the epicenter of end-time prophecy. And so all these things, to me, are just pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the things that I've mentioned before, and I'll just mention it very quickly, that one of the doctrines that's growing in the church today, and 
unfortunately, when I say the church, I mean the church at large, but unfortunately, even among evangelical churches and ministries, is the replacement theology. And the replacement theology says that God has no plan for Israel. They do not play a role in the end times. The church has uh, substituted Israel, and all the, the promises that were made for Israel is made for the church. And it's interesting. I'm going to try to get some figures and some facts to show you how fast that doctrine is growing so you can see how more and more Christians are adopting that. And it's so far from what God's Word declares that God is going to fulfill His promise to Israel, and He has a plan for them and a purpose for them. And one of the plans that we're going to see is they are going to be isolated, uh, and there's a purpose for that because they're going to see how God is for them and is working in the last days. And then after Ezekiel 38 and 39, we see that God pours out His Spirit on them, and we don't know exactly the time frame for uh, that war that is going to be in the last days, as we see in Ezekiel 38, but also a war that hasn't been fulfilled. It is not the war of Gog and, or uh, the war of uh, battle of Armageddon that's spoken of that will take place at the end of the tribulation. So this is a war, a major war that will take place where God will defend the nation of Israel and he will destroy five-fifths of those armies Gog and Magog and Tubal and Persia and Ethiopia and Cush and all those who come against Israel. So I personally think that the stage is being set. We've been watching this for years as these alliances have been coming together. And I think what I'm trying to say to you is that these are exciting days that we're living in as a Christian. And we're living in the days of Ezekiel, I believe. We've seen Ezekiel 36 and 37 as the nation has come to birth, the vision of the dry bones, as Ezekiel saw those dry bones out there. And he said, God said to Ezekiel, can these bones be made to live? And Ezekiel said, you know, Lord, and the bones come together, and then pretty soon they're skeletons, and, and then soon came all the muscles and the tissues and the skin and their corpse, and God said, can they be made to, to live? And, and Ezekiel said, you know, Lord, and he breathed life into them. And it speaks about a nation that was dead at one time for 2,000 years out of their homeland. And absolutely amazing that after 2,000 years that they come back into their original homeland and they are established just as God said that it would happen. And as Amos says, that once they come back into the land, then they will not be plucked out again. And we have seen that God has defended that nation against overwhelming odds. And so you know, most of the Jews in Israel are secular Jews. You have the um, Jews that are very religious and Orthodox Jews, and, and we know that God is going to be working to open up their eyes, as Paul says, that that time will come. It's a prerequisite, really, of the second coming of Jesus Christ, that their eyes will be open and they will realize that Jesus was their Messiah. And as Zechariah records, they will say, where did you get those wounds? And they will answer that I got them in the house of my friends. You see, a lot of these things aren't being talked about in churches today. It's because I think pastors are afraid that they're going to scare you. It's nothing to be scared about, but it is a lot for us to consider. I don't know how this current situation, how the final uh, you know, uh, realization of it is going to unfold, uh, whether it's just going to escalate into what is Ezekiel 38 
or whether it's going to be something that's going to resolve itself, we don't know. But we sure see the major players, and I want you to be prepared, not scared, and prepared to be able to minister to others in the truth of God's Word because people are wondering, and people are, are looking at it thinking this world is really m- messed up and mixed up, and there's a lot of things going on, and what does the Bible have to say about it? Because I know, I get emails and I get phone calls on it. And people are wondering, you know, what does the Scripture have to say? And part of what we're going to talk about tonight, we need to continue in the Scriptures and learning. And the Lord's going to use those who are equipped, who are learning the Scriptures in the days in which we're living in. So exciting times to be watching, and we'll be talking about these things as we progress through the book of Psalms and then on New Year's Eve as we have our prophecy update. But tonight, Psalm 79 is where we want to begin. And Father, we do ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. And Lord, as we see the events around us, as even tonight as reports are coming out out that the West Bank is, um, violence has erupted, troops are being sent in. Um, We see that Russia is... Uh, flexing her muscles uh, with military buildup and three military bases that they're building in Syria. We see that Iranian troops are on the ground right now, even as we speak. And Lord, as we look at it, we know that, um, that your word is true, that every dot and tittle of what is predicted is going to come to pass. And we know that we're in the last days that you have brought Israel back into the land like you promised, and that you are working in this generation to show us and to tell us that your soon return is getting closer and closer. We don't know the day or the hour, but we do know the times and the seasons. And Lord, that we can discern just as Jesus would rebuke the religious leaders, saying, you can't discern the coming of the Son of Man. You can discern the weather. But, Lord, we want to be discerning in the days in which we're living in. And, Lord, I pray that tonight would be part of preparing us and helping us to stay alert and to stay awake and to be paying attention. So, Lord, help us. Help us be ones that were yielded to you, abiding in you, continuing in the Scriptures and desiring to be used of you in the days in which we're living in. So bless this time as we study your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 79, as we start, as I've told you, that we're in book three of the book of Psalms. In book three, that started in Psalm 73 and goes through Psalm 89, these psalms speak of the sanctuary. It speaks of the temple. And one of the things, if you're new to Old Testament study, is that it can become very confusing when we talk about the temple, when we talk about the captivity. There's the Assyrian captivity, and there's the Babylonian captivity, and there's the northern ten tribes called the House of Israel, and the two southern tribes of Benjamin and Judah that make up the House of Judah. And so there's a lot of confusion when, when Christians read uh, the Old Testament, and they see those terms. And of course, as we've been through the history of Israel, as we saw that David, he came along, he was the king of Israel that would defeat his enemies all around him about 1000 BC. And David, even though he desired to build the temple, the Lord told him that he would not build the temple. 
But David was one, as we see in First Chronicles, that made preparations for the temple. He got all the Levites in place and the gatekeepers and the singers and the musicians and, and the military all organized and the priests all organized. And it was all shown to him by the Lord to do that. And he even made plans for the temple. And in his defeat of the other nations, he began to gather you know, the spoils, the gold and the silver that would be used in the construction of the temple. So when David got that all ready to go, even though the Lord said, you're not going to build the temple, David did what he could do. And we know that after the death of David, he reigned in Israel for 40 years, that Solomon, his son, became the king. And Solomon, as you know, he was one that, that reigned during that time of the, Israel's greatest prosperity, greatest peace, greatest power, and he reigned for 40 years. But something happened under the reign of Solomon. We all hear about the wisdom of Solomon. We read about it in the scriptures. But Solomon wasn't all that wise at the end of his life. And with having uh, a thousand wives and concubines, many of those being from foreign lands, he began to burn incense to those foreign gods that his wives and concubines worship. He built altars to them and temples to them. He, he burnt incense to them. So for one who was supposed to be so wise, he wasn't very wise at all. And wisdom, always remember this, is not just knowing about God's word, but godly wisdom is having it worked out in your life. So Solomon, we know that he, he did that. And idol worship would kind of be uh, reintroduced since the first time since the days of the judges back into the land. Well, Solomon dies after his 40 years of reign, and his son Rehoboam comes on the scene. And Rehoboam, he has this group of elders, these young guys that are advising him. And the people come to Rehoboam and say, listen, Rehoboam, you know, your father, he taxed us heavily. He, he took our lands. He, he took our sons and daughters as servants and all of this. Can you just ease up on us? And so Rehoboam went to the elders that were under Solomon, and, and they said, the older ones, the more wise ones, they said, listen, you need to just serve the people. And if you do, and if you treat them right, that you're going to do well. And he went to the young guys. They said, you know what? You need to really show them who's the boss. And you need to tell them that they haven't seen anything yet, that, that you're really going to let them have it. And so that's what Rehoboam did. And the ten northern tribes at that time, they broke away from Judah and from Benjamin. So at that time, you have the house of Israel up north and then the house of Judah down south. And Judah, again, included where the temple was and where, um, you know, Jerusalem was, God's holy city, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin. The kings of the tribe of Israel, every single one of them, I believe there was 19 kings, were idol worshippers. They had a terrible history. And finally, in about 732 B.C., the Assyrians, we've been talking about the Assyrians, the Assyrians come to power. And they begin to make their way towards Israel. They come and they, first of all, take those two and a half tribes that were on the east side of the Jordan River. The tribe of Gad, the tribe of Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They picked them off and take them off into captivity. And then they would make their way in 722 B.C. and took the other nine and a half, uh, well, they took the other tribes of Israel off into captivity. And, and they put fish hooks in their mouths and drug them off. So 722 B.C., the house of Israel, taken off into captivity. And that's what we've read a lot about, is Israel going into captivity by the Assyrians. 
Well, we read too also about the time uh, after that, about 705 B.C., Here's Hezekiah, that godly king. He's in Jerusalem, and the Assyrians are continuing to make their way south. And they come up to Jerusalem. They surround Jerusalem. They're about ready to, to destroy Jerusalem and, and, and to destroy the people. Uh, they're threatening Hezekiah. They're threatening the people. But we know that God sent an angel that destroyed the Assyrian soldiers that had surrounded God's holy city. So at that time, in about 705 B.C., the Assyrians began to decline in power. But something very significant happened at that time. Hezekiah, he became sick. And as you read in Isaiah 38 and 39, you read about how he was very sick. Isaiah comes to him and says, get your house in order. You're going to die, Hezekiah. And Hezekiah cried out to the Lord. He's praying and weeping to the Lord. Lord, I don't want to die. Save my life. And it was the Lord that came to Hezekiah and said, okay, I'm going to extend your life for 15 years. Two very significant things happened during that extension of 15 years. Number one was, is that these envoys from a faraway country called Babylon came to see Hezekiah. And they brought him gifts, and they said, congratulations, we heard that, that you were uh, sick, and uh, we heard what happened to the Assyrian army, and, and your God must be a great God, and buttered him up. And, and so Hezekiah shows them the treasuries of the palace and of the temple, and Isaiah comes to him when they're leaving those envoys and says, who were those guys? And, and Hezekiah says, well, they're envoys, some visitors from a faraway nation called Babylon. And, and what did you show them? Isaiah asked Hezekiah. I showed them everything. I showed them the treasuries of the palace and of, of the temple. Well, you know what these guys were doing. They're taking notes. And they're making a record of what it is that they saw. So they go back, and Isaiah at that time gave a prophecy to Hezekiah and says, Hezekiah, this is what's going to happen. That this nation that these guys are from are going to grow in strength. And they're going to come, and they're going to take you off into captivity. It's not going to happen in your day, but it's going to happen later. And they're going to take the choice men of, of Judah off into captivity, and then they're going to take the treasuries of the temple off to their pagan temple in Babylon. Well, 100 years later, all of a sudden, 605 B.C., uh, there's Babylon that gained in power and strength. Again, the Assyrians had declined in power. And, and here's Nebuchadnezzar, a general. Uh, he's leading the troops against Egypt, and he gets word all of a sudden that his father has died, his father who's the king of Babylon. So to secure the, the throne, Nebuchadnezzar has to hurry back to Babylon. And on his way back from the battle of Shar Shemes and, and defeating the Egyptians and all of that, he stops by Jerusalem. And he stops in Jerusalem, he takes them captive, he brings his troops into Judah, and he takes the choice men of Judah away into captivity, Daniel being one of them. And also, they began to take some of the treasuries from the temple away, just as Isaiah had prophesied. That was the first wave of captivity in 605 B.C., and then another wave came in 597 B.C. Ezekiel was taken off into captivity. So he's in Babylon. He's prophesying. Daniel's in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar of, uh, as he's 
trained in, in, in leadership in the Babylonian government. And then Jeremiah is in Jerusalem, and he's left behind. He's ministering for 40 years, and he's telling uh, the, the leaders of the nations as they gathered there, Moab and, and Ammon and some of the others, they, they come to Zedekiah, who's the last king of Judah. And, and they begin to plot, how is it that we can throw off the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar? And, and it was Jeremiah that came and said, don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. If you just submit to him, everything is going to be okay. But if you rebel against him, it's going to be terrible. Well, we know that Zedekiah, that he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So in 586 B.C., the third and final wave of Nebuchadnezzar coming in, in the captivity. And he would take many people off in the captivity, but many died. And he destroyed Jerusalem, and he destroyed the magnificent temple, Solomon's temple. And that's what Psalm 79 is all about. And I want you to understand the historical uh, timeline of everything that has happened so you can really, we can understand the spiritual implications of what the psalmist is writing about. So let's begin to look at this as the temple's being destroyed, Jerusalem's being ripped apart, and, O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, verse 1, your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps and dead bodies of your servants, and they have given as food for the birds of the heavens, the flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors and a scorn and derision to those who are around us. And how long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Verse 6, pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. And so the psalmist here writing about this terrible time, and not only did the Babylonians destroy the city, but many were killed and, and left, and their corpses were all around, as he says that the dead bodies of your servants, they're given as food to the birds, and, and blood has been shed like water all around Jerusalem. It's flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. Now, Daniel, again, taken off in the captivity. Ezekiel, ministering in Judah. Jeremiah had been prophesying. And we know that in chapter 19, Jeremiah, he took the leaders uh, of, of Judah. And he took them overlooking the valley of Hammon. And, and he takes a pot and he throws it down and he breaks it. And he says, this is what's going to happen unless you turn from your idols and your rebellion. And, and there's going to be death and devastation to a great degree. And that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem at this time, one of the worst days and worst times of their whole history, all because of their rebellion and forsaking the Lord in their idol worship. And as we talked about a couple Wednesdays ago, they were in Jeremiah chapter 7, the false prophets coming along and saying, oh, we don't need to worry about anything. Even though they began to go off into captivity in 605 B.C., that captivity is only going to be for two or three years, and then Nebuchadnezzar is going to fall. But nothing's going to happen really to us here in Jerusalem because the temple, the temple, the temple, we're God's covenant people. We have the temple. And Jeremiah is saying, don't heed their words. They're false prophets. May we never come to the mindset in our own lives or us as a church 
that we begin to trust in things. We begin to trust in, and, you know, we have this and we have that. Even as a nation, we want to make sure that, that we're not trusting in horses and chariots, as David would write, but we need to remember the name of the Lord our God. And, of course, we're concerned that as a nation, we're turning further away from the Lord. What's going to happen to us? We're the United States of America. Or I pray that as a church, we wouldn't get away from really making the Lord our trust and desiring to please Him and desiring to know Him. And everything that we do here honors Him. And we do it in a way, as the Scriptures tells us, is pleasing to Him. I pray that we wouldn't trust in buildings and budgets and numbers of people and all of that, but we would trust in the Lord. And in our own lives, that we would understand that God warns us what will happen if we rebel against him. I want us to notice something here. Mark it in verse 1, the word defiled. Verse 2, the word death. Verse 4 is the word derisen. Derisen is taunts, snares, mocking. And then in verse 7, the word devour. The four D's. And I think that it's important for us to mark those things because these are four things that will take place when we in our own lives, because remember, remember this, is talking about the temple here that the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians have come in to destroy. But remember, as a church, we are called the temple of God. Remember Ephesians chapter 2? We're a holy temple unto the Lord. And also as individuals, we are called the temple of God. And if we are rebelling against the Lord, these four things are going to happen. There's just going to be a defiling that's going to happen. If we're given under, over to uncleanness and, and immorality or sin or carnality, we just end up being defiled. There is death. There's this a death that takes place in our, in our closeness with the Lord, in our fellowship with Him. There's just death that takes place in our lives spiritually. There is derision. There are those who, when we are in rebellion against the Lord, that are saying, they call themselves a Christian. They're no different than anybody else. You remember that when David sinned against Bathsheba, it was Nathan the prophet that came to him and said, David, you have sinned. And David said, oh, I have sinned. And and Nathan said, you're forgiven, but this is what's happened, David. You've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name. There are those who just will begin to snare and begin to to mock and taunt and, and all of this because we are in rebellion against the Lord and the consequences of that is those who will begin to speak against us and against the Lord. There's going to be that which is devoured, so much devoured and lost. May we never forget this, Calvary Chapel family. Sin ruins everything. It just ruins everything. And I pray that we never come to the point of our lives where we think, well, it's no big deal. Little sin here, little carnality there, a little bit of of compromise there. Listen, sin ruins everything. It will defile you. It will bring death to you spiritually. 
There will be the, the mocking, uh, the, the ruining of your character and your reputation. There will be the ruining of your joy and your peace and, and your fellowship and closeness with the Lord and other brothers and sisters as relationships are strained and severed. It just ruins everything. And it just devours that which is of great importance to us. It ruins marriages and relationship with our kids. And we see it all around us, don't we? So this was what was happening because of their rebellion, even though they were warmed. And, and the psalmist here in verses 5 through 7 is kind of struggling, just like Habakkuk in his book. He, he would struggle, Lord, why are you using a pagan nation to come and judge us and bring judgment? And again, they thought nothing would happen to them. We're God's covenant people. But you see, judgment did come to them. And there's repercussions and there are consequences because of sin. But I do want to bring you good news. Because when there is sin, there is forgiveness. And as I pointed out last week in the book of Lamentations, as Jeremiah, a lot of people don't like to read that book, Lamentations, because it's a lament. It's written by Jeremiah during the time that this has taken place here in Psalm 79. And he's talking about the anguish and the darkness, and it is a lament, and it's a heavy book. But in the midst of that lament, we see that there is also hope that is given. And in that hope of a nation that God was bringing to them, he writes, through the Lord's mercies, though the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. And they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. In other words, as Jeremiah is writing to them, the Lord is your hope. He is your future, just as he wrote in Jeremiah chapter 29, that letter to the captives, and his compassion fails not. His mercies are new every single morning, and know that there is forgiveness, and he has compassion, and his mercies are new. And he goes on to say, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth, for the Lord will not cast off forever, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. We're to wait and seek him and wait quietly for the Lord to work and know that he's the one that restores the years that the locusts have eaten. So I don't want to leave you just with no hope or any of us because we can go through the disappointments and the repercussions of our shortcomings and our failures and our sin. That God still has compassion and his mercies are new every morning. And he desires to work in your life. And the psalmist continues to write, Oh, do not remember the former, verse 8, iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to us. For we have been brought very low. And help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. And deliver us and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. And why should the nations say, Where is their God? And let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. So the psalmist was concerned for the glory of God's name. And after the lament, here, there is uh, a spoken supplication. Lord, uh, please, a specific, specific request that he gives to the Lord. He's concerned about 
God's name and God's glory. He doesn't want that to be hurt or harmed. And you see, I think that the Lord, when we come with the heart of, Lord, I don't want to hurt your name. I don't want to hurt your glory or try to take your glory. That the Lord gives special attention to that prayer. We want to honor you, Lord. We want your glory to be magnified. We want your name to be lifted up. Remember Moses, as the children of Israel danced carnally, nakedly around that golden calf, and, and Moses is up on the mountain, and, and the Lord said to Moses, Moses, uh, get down. Your people have sinned a great sin. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to wipe them out. Step back, Moses, step back. And Moses said, Lord, don't destroy them. They're your people. And what would the other nations say, that you brought them out just to destroy them? What would they say about your name? And you said that you would make a great nation as you made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and Lord, please, and, and he was concerned about God's name and God's glory. And the Lord knew he wasn't going to destroy them, but special attention was given to that prayer. And so here the psalmist calling on God's mercy, and, and which is not getting what we deserve. And we have God's mercy that is in our lives. And he loves it when we are concerned about not harming the name of God, not touching his glory. And he desires to work in a heart that has that. In verse 11, let the groanings of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are appointed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold to their bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever, and we will show forth your praise to all generations. So here the, the descendant of Asaph continues to cry out for God to spare them and, and punish our enemies seven times more as the psalmist is crying out for retribution. And then Psalm 80, to the chief musician, said to the lilies, a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. So this psalm is, is concerning this prayer about Assyria taking Israel into captivity. That happened when? Here comes the quiz, 722 B.C., right? It happened over 100 years before um, Psalm 79. So this is when the Assyrians come to the ten northern tribes and take them away off into captivity. And we read in verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who, uh, you who lead Joseph like a flock, and you who dwell between the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Stir up your strength and come and save us. So, of course, the, the cherubim, the, you who dwell between the cherubim. Remember that Moses, when he was told to make the Ark of the Covenant, that you're going to put a lid on it, which is the mercy seat, and two golden cherubims, and I'll dwell between the cherubim. In Ezekiel, in his vision of the, the throne of God, uh, that was bright colors and, and fiery. There was uh, the cherubim, the seraphims, the guardian angels of the throne of God. That's what it's a picture of. And so here is the psalmist uh, that is writing. We know that um, he is mentioning these tribes as he says, 
Joseph and, and Ephraim and Manasseh of Israel. Once again, a cry of deliverance. In verse 4, uh, O Lord God of hosts. Well, in verse two, 3, let's go back to verse 3. Restore us, O God. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And then verse 4, O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears and give them tears to drink in great measure. You have made us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laughed among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. And you have brought a vine out of Egypt, and you have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow, and the mighty cedars with its boughs, and set out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. In verse 12, why have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out the woods uproots it, and the wild beast of the field devours it. So here is the, the psalmist continues uh, to say that the enemy would mock God's people, uh, and that's what they would do. We have become a byword. You read that in the Psalms and, and in the history of Israel. In other words, you know, these are God's people. Look, they're, they're nothing and would be laughed at and mocked. Here's the thing, that the enemy will mock us. And the world is going to mock us and laugh at us. And I think that as we get closer to the return of the Lord, we're going to be laughed at more and we're going to be mocked more. So it's going to be really important that we stand for the Lord. It's going to be real important that every day that we put on the whole armor of God as we talked about on Sunday, because it is a spiritual battle that is out there. And the world, don't be surprised by it. If it gets worse, the world is going to laugh at us and mock us and come against us to, I believe, a great degree and a greater degree. So we want to be strong and of good courage and continue in the things of God and in the Word of God. And just as we saw in Psalm 78, that there was that concern of the psalmist that the Word of God wasn't being taught to the next generation and to the people. And we want to make sure that we're doing that. We want to make sure that we're teaching our children the Word of God, that we ourselves are into the Word of God, and we continue in that, that we put the sword of the Spirit and, and, and have that which is the Word of God at Ephesians chapter 6. We want to make sure that we have the, the helmet of salvation, knowing that we're secure in our salvation, the breastplate of, of, of righteousness and, and of faith, and knowing that, Lord, that we can step out in faith because your word declares that your promises are true for me. So all this armor that we talked about on Sunday, continuing in the things of the Lord. But then in verse 8 here through verse 13, the psalmist is talking about how God brought them into a wonderful land in uh, an image of a vine. Now, those of you who are students of the word, it might remind you of Isaiah chapter 5. Remember Isaiah chapter 5 that Isaiah was writing about God's disappointing vineyard, it speaks of the nation of Israel. And in that Isaiah chapter 5, and let me read it to you, my well-beloved has a vineyard, and on a very fruitful hill, he dug it and cleared it out its stones. He dug it up and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And he goes on to say how he was going to deal with this vineyard. 
that he gave him everything to succeed. He gave him the best land. He cleared it out, the best of the, the grapes, the, the vines, uh, a wall around it, a tower around it. It had water, it had a, a wine press, had everything it needed to produce good fruit and good grapes, but it ended up producing bad grapes. And, of course, wasn't it Jesus that came along and made reference to Isaiah chapter 5 when he was rebuking the religious leaders. And in that rebuke of the religious leaders, he tells that parable of the wicked vine dressers, how there was a certain man who planted a vineyard and leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. He's speaking about the religious leaders. And the servants came, and the vine dressers would beat the servants, and they would leave without anything. And so the owner of the vineyard said, well, I'll send my son. And as Jesus is telling that parable, he said, the son, they said, we will kill him and take his inheritance or his inheritance will be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. And therefore, Jesus asked, what did the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he's talking about a nation and how they had rejected him, the son of God. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So all this is in reference, as Isaiah 5 talking about uh, the disappointing vineyard. They were to be ones that they were to produce fruit, to be a blessing not only for you know, their own people, but be a blessing to the other nations. They were to come along, and as the psalmist is writing here, that they were to pass by the way and pluck her fruit, verse 12. You see, a lot of times they had walls around those vineyards, and the fruit would, would grow over the walls, just, you know, what we can see today. There's a, uh, Sue and I can take a walk. We used to take a walk down the street, and there's an apple tree that came over the fence, you know, this, this six-foot fence that was a solid fence, but the apples would come over, and you could pick them, you know, in August if you wanted to. And the passerbys would come by, and they would pick the grapes that would grow over the wall is to be a blessing to the stranger, to the foreigner that would pass by. They were to be a light to the other nations, a testimony of the reality of God in their lives and working in their lives. But yet, because of their rebellion, and again, because of their uh, idol worship, and because of their turning away from the Lord, they went off into captivity. I kind of want to close with this tonight and consider this. Because what does Jesus say about you and me when it comes to the vine? He would say in John chapter 15, most of you know it, that I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that he bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So Jesus is saying in that last statement of I am, the statements of deity that he made in John's gospel, he said, I am the vine. And in that, he was saying, I'm divine. And so as he says that, the vine is the plant that provides the life and nourishment to the branches that are connected to it. And then in verse 2, he says, to every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. The verb has been translated by many scholars to mean lift up and every branch that bears fruit he he prunes or purifies washes that it may bear more fruit one of the things that i noticed the last time that i went to israel is israel has many vineyards and and um, their agricultural skills are just unbelievable but 
as they have those vineyards there, you can go by the vineyards, and of course they're a lot like what you will see in California or in Europe and Italy or in France or something like that, where the vineyards grow and they have them up on a, you know, on wires, on, on poles and, and down rows. But some of the older vineyards, some of the smaller ones, more local ones, uh, one of the practices that they still use is the vines grow on the ground. And they grow more on the ground. And so what they do is they lift them up and they'll put rocks under them. So that's what the psalmist, or, or what Jesus is saying, excuse me, in chapter 15. He says that every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away, or maybe in your translation, he lifts it up. Get it out of the dirt, washes it. And so it can get more sun. He lifts it up. He desires for it to bear fruit because we see that Jesus would say, I want you to bear fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. So abide in me is what he says. Be connected to me. I am the one that's going to, to empower you and enable you to live a life for me. You stay connected to me. Abide in me. Just as that, that plant is to abide in, in the vine, to give it nourishment, uh, to give it uh, water and life. If we want to have life abundantly, as we desire to have that life that Jesus has, we're connected to him. And you stay connected to him, abide in him, and he desires to lift you up, to wash you with the water of the word. So again, we need that. We don't need to be in the dirt of the world, but we need to be lifted up and washed and so that the sun can empower us and nourish us. So the word has such an important effect on our lives. You know, I was thinking about that child, uh, you know, uh, that song that's um, sung uh, when we were little in, in children's ministry, and, and it was, read your Bible every day. Any of you sing that? Read your Bible every day. The best way to start the day is, this is where you come in, Okay. <laughs> Read your Bible every day. Don't pull away from the Lord. Don't pull away from Him. Stay close to Him. Because not only does He want to bear fruit, He wants to bear more fruit, Jesus said. He wants to, to bear much more fruit. And then He says, I want to bear fruit that remains. And as you abide in me personally, and abide in my word, and abide in my love, you're going to have a fullness of joy. We'll talk about that on Sunday. And you and I, and as a church, we're going to be a fruity people. Good fruit. Stay connected to him. Don't pull away. There's a lot of things that can pull us away from the Lord and our closeness and our fellowship with the Lord. But may we abide in him personally, and in his word, and in his love. And as you do, you're going to produce fruit in your life. And you're going to be full of joy. And you're going to experience that life abundantly that he has for all of us and desires to give to us. Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for these psalms that we read. And, and they can be kind of hard to read because they're written during a time of rebellion and devastation and destruction. But Lord... We know that if we rebel against you, spiritually it happens to us. There's a defilement that happens. There's, uh, we get devoured. There's death. There's 
Um, there's all that consequences of sin, and it just hurts, and it's devastating. So we want to stay connected to you, abide in you. You're the one that sustains us, nourishes us, fills us, washes us. Lord, we need you so desperately. And I pray that we would not pull away from you. But Lord, a simple command given to abide in Christ. May we do that, Lord, a desire every day. To every day, to choose this day whom we will serve. And that is you. To choose this day whom we're going to trust in. To choose to grow in your word and in your love. And Lord, may we be ones that people look and see that there's godly character and there's something different in us. Not that it's boastful or prideful at all, but a humility and a fear of the Lord. That they see light, that they see love, that they see godly wisdom being worked out. So, Father, we want that in our lives. We want to stay close to you individually, our families, and this church family. And, Lord, may we remember the things that are important of priority as well. That is to rely on you and trust in you for everything. And, Father, I do want to pray if there is anyone that's listening on live stream or in the sanctuary or maybe sitting out in a coffee shop, you come in and you're wondering, am I even abiding in Christ? Am I even saved? That we desire for you to know that Jesus loves you and his compassion fails not and his mercies are new every single day and he desires to bring you into a relationship with him What we want to tell you is about the good news of being forgiven of sin and having the hope of heaven and have true relationship with God that only comes through Jesus Christ and what he did for you on that cross as he died for your sins. And that's why Jesus came, because of his love for you and to provide for you forgiveness and to have relationship with you as you surrender your life to him. Will you do that? Really examine yourselves if you've never done that. If you're not sure if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he desires for you to come and to call upon his name for salvation. There's no other sacrifice for sin. There's no other salvation. There's no one else who died for you or rose from the grave, only Jesus, the Son of God. And that's why his name is lifted up and elevated. There is no other name amongst men in which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus and coming to him and calling upon him. If that means anything to anyone tonight, right where you are, call upon him. You pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, I come to you, a sinner. I recognize my need to be forgiven. And I believe that you're the son of God who died on that cross for me. Forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. And I believe that you rose again and you're alive because you are speaking to my heart and Lord I now open my life and my heart to you be my personal Lord and Savior for you to 
be the Lord of my life, to direct me and guide me, to abide in you every single day of my life. Lord, produce fruit in my life as I do that. In Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, anybody, I want you to come up and pray with me after the service and when we conclude it in just a minute. But for all of us, Lord, we need you. May we stay close to you. May we follow you. And Lord, may you do a marvelous work in us and in our families and in this church family.